here at H2O, and I'm grateful for us to be back on campus together. I hope you got to experience moments of rest and refreshment during break. I know for me, there were definitely moments for that. I got some good time with my family, got some good time doing things I enjoy, like cooking or reading or exercising, but I also got to use the break to process and reflect a little bit. I shared a little bit last semester about how I've been in a season of questioning questioning things about ministry and the church and what it really means when we say we're Christians. For context, I've had several catalysts for my questions. Things like hearing about how church leaders I respect abused and harmed people and seeing churches and Christian organizations protect abusers. Or politicians and pop culture icons who profess to be Christians but don't treat people anything like Christ did. Or seeing friends and people I know who are Christians post or say or do harmful things, sometimes even in the name of Jesus. And so going into break, I was hoping to make sense of this stuff I'd been processing. But the whole Christmas season just brought up even more questions for me. Because for much of my life, I've known that Christmas is a holiday that celebrates the birth of Jesus, but we spend way more time talking about gift-giving and fables of Santa and elves and Christmas movies and Christmas music and Christmas decorations that don't have anything to do with Jesus. But ever since having kids, it's been a lot harder for me to reconcile that dissonance. And a big reason for that is how I've seen my toddler try to make sense of Christmas. Because if you spend any time around kids, then you know they're not afraid to ask questions when something doesn't make sense to them, right? So here are a few questions that my toddler was asking over break. She was like, Dada, if this is Jesus' birthday, why are people giving me so many presents? Why are we buying so much stuff? Why do people cut down trees and put them in their homes? Did Santa and elves visit Jesus after he was born? And some of these questions might sound consumerism and pagan traditions. And yet all those things are synonymous with the Christmas season in our culture today. And I don't share that to dog on anyone who enjoys traditions that involve those things, but much like my questions and struggles with leaders in the church or politicians or pop culture icons who claim to value Jesus but live otherwise, I think my three-year-old is sniffing things out. How we say we're celebrating Jesus' birthday but do so many things that don't have anything to do with Jesus. Do you see what I'm trying to get at here? I think all this stuff that I'm talking about is some of the fruit of the church not taking Jesus seriously. And I know nobody's perfect. I have my own hypocritical vices. But after repeated instances without signs of change, it's hard to not feel like something's off and then start asking questions. I know that's the case for me, and I'm seeing that that's the case for my daughter also. Now, maybe you're in a place like me where you're questioning some things. Or maybe you feel really grounded on what it means to be a Christian. But wherever you're at, 
I think it's really good for us to periodically ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? Is my life a reflection of Jesus? You know, the word Christian comes from the Greek, a Greek word that literally means little Christ. We are little representations of Jesus. And so as Christians, what does it mean for us to represent Jesus in our life, in our church, with our finances, in our work, in our relationships, in our be taking Jesus seriously? And our hope is that we'd continue doing that. In August, we started this year with a simple theme. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which we build our lives. And so as members of our staff team prayed about a sermon series for spring semester, we wanted to get to know Jesus more in the hopes that we'd build our lives to look more and more like him. And so as a church, we're going to spend all of spring semester examining the life and teachings and commands of Jesus in the book of Mark. And we're calling this sermon series Believing Jesus. Because in order to live more like Jesus, we got to spend time getting to know who Jesus is and believing that Jesus. And so we're going to scratch the surface of that today in Mark chapter 1. But before we open up there, let me pray and ask God to bless our time in the Word. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to learn from you and live like you. Help us to not only believe in you, but believe the words you spoke and the things you did in such a way that it transforms us to live more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible or a phone and want to follow along, we'll be in Mark chapter 1. But before we start reading, here's some context for Mark. The person and the book. So conservative Bible scholars think Mark was around 12 years old when the Romans executed Jesus. And Mark wasn't one of the 12 original disciples, but he had deep connections to the Jesus movement. Through the book of Acts, we know that his mom was a critical leader in the early church. And her home was a hub for the church to meet in secret. And through the books of Acts and Colossians and 1 Peter, we know Mark went on missionary journeys with his cousin Barnabas and with his spiritual mentor Peter and with the Apostle Paul. So Mark was well acquainted with people who knew Jesus. And when he was in his 40s, Mark took what he knew about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he wrote it down in a letter. And he sent it to a Roman audience, and we now refer to that letter as the Gospel of Mark. And Mark didn't just write down a random assortment of events. He carefully crafted a letter with a clear intention to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And the word Messiah had a very specific connotation back then. For Jews, the Messiah was this long-expected king, sometimes referred to as the Son of God, who'd set up a kingdom on earth that elevated the values of God and got rid of evil and corruption and oppression. And so around this time of Jesus, Israel was ruled and oppressed by Romans. And so many Jews wanted the Messiah to come, overthrow the Romans, and rule as their king. But when Jesus came, he didn't conquer the Romans. In fact, the Romans killed Jesus. 
So why did so many people still consider Jesus to be the Messiah? That's precisely what Mark's letter is addressing. Mark is actually writing to a Roman audience, and he's wanting to show that even though Jesus isn't the Messiah people expected, he's the Messiah all people need. Because he came to rescue people from sin and death and to serve people and love people and lead people to live like him and join him in his eternal kingdom mission. And Mark's gospel powerfully conveys conveys that message to its readers. But of the four accounts that we have of Jesus' life, Mark is the shortest and contains the fewest words from Jesus. Because rather than emphasizing what Jesus says, Mark's aim is to emphasize what Jesus did. And Mark does this at a feverish pace. His letter is story after story of Jesus doing amazing things. And as we read, you'll notice phrases like immediately or suddenly or at once. Phrases like that are used hundreds of times in Mark's letter because Mark wants us to feel like we're in that moment with Jesus. I know sometimes we read the Bible at a slow and methodical pace, but like a movie producer who infuses a film with nonstop action to draw us in, Mark's furious pace is meant to draw ancient listeners in. Now, we're going to pause and break things down as we read through Mark, but keep that in mind as we go. Mark is writing with an intentional purpose and an intentional fast-paced style to evoke an intentional response from his readers to know and follow Jesus. So with that, let's start off in Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, this might seem like a generic introduction, but Mark is doing something audaciously bold here. He calls what he is writing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Othniel mentioned in our last sermon before break what the word gospel meant for Romans. Our word gospel comes from a Greek word which means good news. And the good news Rome tried to spread through their conquest of the world was that Caesar, their king, was God. And that through his rule, he would save us and bring peace on earth. And so Mark is deliberately challenging the Romans by using the word gospel here. He wants them to know that the gospel of Caesar cannot compare to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is king, and not just any king. He's the son of God. And he's the actual savior who's going to bring peace on earth. Now, this verse is the only time Mark tells us what he thinks. For the next 677 verses of this letter, Mark is simply going to put Jesus' actions and words in front of us and tell us what others think about Jesus. So let's keep reading. Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. All four gospel accounts in our Bible, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, use this quote from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, it's such an important quote that it shows up multiple times in the Old Testament, including Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. 
And so for about 400 years after Malachi was written, people had been anxiously awaiting a messenger who'd prepare the way for the messianic king of the world. And that context helps us make sense of what Mark writes next. Look at verses 4 to 8 with me. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark introduces John as the long-awaited messenger from the Old Testament. And he says the whole countryside and all of Jerusalem flocked to be baptized by John. Because back then, baptism or being immersed in water was a symbol for someone converting to Judaism. And so John seems to have applied the act of baptism for anyone who believed that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. Now you might be wondering, okay, why were so many people convinced that a guy wearing camel hair clothes and a leather belt was this long-awaited messenger from the Old Testament? Well, John wasn't the first person in the Bible to dress like that. In the Old Testament in 2 Kings, a prophet by the name of Elijah came to tell people that the Lord was on his way. And here's a description of Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8. It says he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And if you read more about John, it wasn't just that he looked like Elijah. It was what he said and how he lived. And he mirrored Elijah in so many ways. And Elijah was making the way for the Lord. And so when John said that he he came to make a way for the Lord, people believed him. So the reader expects John to precede this Messiah. And then we read this, Mark 1, verses 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up from the water, the heavens tore open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. So Mark gives an epic character introduction here. Right when the reader expects John to introduce the Messiah, Jesus shows up. And notice, Jesus doesn't say a single word. Instead, The sky parts. God praises him. He overcomes Satan in the wilderness, and angels serve him. Mark is trying to make it crystal clear for everyone to see Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And as Jesus emerges from the wilderness, these are his first words. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. A whole sermon could be given on that one sentence, but the gist of what Jesus is saying is he's just spelling out what the reader should know by now. The Messiah they've all all been waiting for is him. Jesus is him. And Mark's going to use the rest of his letter to show us why Jesus is him and why we should follow him. 
And this is where the pace of Mark's letter ramps up. It's a nonstop, action-packed drama that's meant to provoke us to follow Jesus. And through the rest of our series in Mark, we'll cover certain stories and we'll pause at key moments to gain deeper insights about who Jesus is. But as we close today, I want to read the rest of Mark 1 the way Mark intended. Straight through with no pauses. And typically, we put the words up on the screen for folks to follow along, but when Mark first wrote his letter, most people weren't reading it. They were listening to someone else read it. And so we're going to try and do that today. I'm going to read the rest of Mark 1 out loud, and I invite you to just listen. Try to imagine Jesus actually doing these things. If it may help you focus you can try and close your eyes as you listen. And I'll be reading for about three minutes straight. So get comfortable, but also try to lock in. Let yourself get caught up in the story that Mark is telling and pay attention to any thoughts or emotions that come up for you. Sound good? Okay. Mark 1, 16 to 45. As Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Peter and Andrew fishing. He said to them, follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. A bit further they saw James and John in their boat. Immediately Jesus called them and they left their father in the boat and followed him. They went to Capernaum and right away Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished because he taught with authority and unlike the scribes. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit entered the synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know you're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. Immediately, the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed and began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? Even unclean spirits obey him. At once, news of him spread through all of Galilee. So they left the synagogue and went to Peter and Andrew's house with James and John. When they heard Peter's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, Jesus went to her, took her by the hand, raised her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, they brought the sick and demon-possessed to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door as he healed the sick and drove out demons, but he didn't permit the, de- permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Then, very early that morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a deserted place to pray. Peter and the others searched for him. When they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus said, let's go to the neighboring villages so I may preach there too. This is why I've come. So Jesus went to all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. Suddenly, a man with leprosy came to him on his knees begging, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Move with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately, The leprosy left him. Then he sternly warned him, say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. But instead, he went out and spread the news about Jesus so Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, 
But even in deserted places, people came to Jesus from everywhere. That's the end of Mark 1. And there's a lot that could be said about that. Because in just one chapter of Mark, Jesus casts out demons and heals the sick and teaches with passion. But he also treats people with compassion. And he led in such a way that people dropped whatever they were doing to follow him. Jesus is so amazing that even when he tells people to keep quiet about him, they can't. They can't shut up because Jesus is that wonderful. You know, if you're hearing these stories for the first time today, it's good to consider, what if what Mark is saying about Jesus is true? What if Jesus is God, wrapped in flesh? And what if he can cast out demons and heal the sick and rebuke the proud? And at the same time, what if he can see you? What if he can have compassion on you and heal you? like he sees and heals the people he encounters in Mark 1. And if you've heard these stories about Jesus before, let's not overlook these passages like roadkill on the side of the road. Let's allow ourselves to be amazed by them. What if all of this is true about Jesus? Let's allow ourselves to be caught up in Jesus just like Peter and Andrew and James and John do in this passage when they throw their nets aside and follow him. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come on back up as we close. And I want to invite you guys to consider two things. The first is this. Will you read the book of Mark with us this semester? There are 16 chapters in Mark, and there are also 16 weeks of classes in the semester. So you could read a chapter a week if you wanted to, or you could read the entire letter straight through every week for 16 weeks, or you could just read one verse from Mark each week. Whatever you do, we want to invite you to read Mark with us. If you're looking for a place to start, just read Mark 1 again this week. If you're not used to reading the Bible, consider maybe inviting someone you know to read it with you. Our hope is that as a church, we'd get to know Jesus through the gospel of Mark this semester, and that through getting to know him, we'd live more like him. So please consider reading Mark's gospel with us this semester. And the second invitation is to take communion with us this morning. I shared earlier today about questions I've been having, questions about the church and how to make sense of the harm Christians cause and how to make sense of the hypocrisy that I see. And something that's grounded me in this season is this moment in Jesus' life when he's eating dinner with all of his disciples a few hours before he's about to be killed on a cross. Right after that meal, Judas hands Jesus over to Roman guards. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus, and all of the other ten disciples desert Jesus. Jesus knows that all of that is about to happen. And there are a lot of things that the disciples could remember from that night, but Jesus invites them to remember one specific moment. During that meal, Jesus took bread at the table. He broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took wine at the table, and he poured it out, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And whenever you break bread and drink, do this in remembrance of me. And so ever since that moment, the church, with all its flaws and all its hypocrisy and all its failures, 
is called to come underneath the grace of Jesus and to remember Jesus. Remember what he did and what he said and that he is our Messiah. And we are to live out of that remembrance and orient our lives around him. And what grounds me about that is that despite all the church's flaws, Jesus is still the Messiah. And communion is a proclamation about that. That he is worth following even when his followers are not. And communion is for anyone who's a Christian. Even if you're questioning. Even if you've been a hypocrite. Or even if you're feeling pretty good and you're just happily following Jesus. And so as the band leads us in a couple of songs, you can grab some bread and dip it in the juice at those tables in the back. We also have gluten-free crackers and thimble-sized cups at each table. But I'm excited to spend the semester getting to know Jesus with you more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that through it, we can know you. And we tell you that we believe in you. We believe that you are the Messiah. Help us to live in such a way that reveals that to those around us. Help us to live out of the power and peace and persistence and joy that comes from knowing you and following you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.